Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's a sunny Sunday <coughs> in September. The jasmine's flowered, and my team's in the grand final. <laughs> I was wondering where this was going. <laughs> I was wondering. There was something I missed about that whole statement. Go Tigers. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they're okay. They're yeah. okay. My, my mum used to barrack for those 40 years ago until we converted her. I think there's still a torch. I suspect there will be. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you going? Oh, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, not too bad. Happening. My team is not in the grand final, unfortunately. Very sad ah. about that, but that's okay. Well, neither's mine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough football talk. Maybe we don't. Don't do that. That's bad. <laughs> uh, now, we're going to do some news, folks, and then we have three guests today. We have a very interesting theme to today's show. It's sort of based around the idea of you know how you survive something like uh, climatic change and so forth. So what we're doing is we're looking at three different researchers who look at the ancient past and different species from those periods and, and how they've evolved and so forth, which is really super cool. Um, it, was, it was really nice to get them all in on the same day. But we're going to start off with some news. Um, Dr. Ailey, do you want to start? I think I have the perfect story given our theme today, actually. So um, my my story today is, is from a recent paper about uh, basically space dust. How is this related to extinction? Well, it's actually related to ice ages on Earth, oh, in yeah. particular, a particular ice age. Um, and also the authors claim uh, biodiversification, which mm-hmm. basically, basically means more species evolving and, and um, yeah, under these conditions. So What's the deal? Basically, when we think of space dust or we think of meteorites and things like that, we think of kind of extinction of the dinosaurs, a big meteorite hitting Earth, you know, throwing up lots of dust from Earth, cooling the Earth and sending us into an ice age, making all these dinosaurs extinct. Mm. Generally bad times. Generally bad times. Well, for those dinosaurs anyway. The mammals did okay, I think. But But in this uh, new study that was published in uh, Nature Scientific Advances, uh, based out of the University of Lund in Sweden, basically they looked at a period 466 million years ago um, and had a look at some, basically some rocks in Sweden and some what we call micrometeorites out of Antarctica. Mm. So these are tiny, tiny, tiny remnants of meteorites. And what they did was have a look at these and and try to kind of date these and work out where they were from. And they basically found that around 466 million years ago, there was a huge increase in the amount of space dust, effectively, um, and stuff coming from space coming into the Earth. Hmm. and settling on the Earth's surface and also coming into the Earth's atmosphere. And this happened to coincide with an ice age in a period called the Ordovician, apparently, period. Okay. <laughs> I have to look up how to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> but basically what they think happened was that it wasn't so much that a meteorite hit Earth, but in fact an asteroid hit another asteroid in the uh, the old asteroid belt between mm-hmm. Mars and Jupiter. They think it was a huge collision. 
that flew off a lot of, you know, a lot of rock broke up, a lot of dust. It basically caused uh, the inner part of the solar system uh, to be filled with dust and that settled over the course of a very long time. We're talking kind of two million years. But what that did was because it was settling in through the Earth's atmosphere, it increased the amount of dust in the stratosphere, which is kind of the... the, the um, the second closest part of the atmosphere to Earth, I would, I would say, kind of 30, 40 kilometres up, and basically caused the Earth to cool down, but not quickly. So not like a big bang like with the mm. dinosaurs. It was very, very slow. They're talking over the course of kind of hundreds of thousands to maybe millions of years um, and a very slow triggering um, or amplification. They're not sure if it was an actual trigger or just an amplification. Uh, basically caused a descent into an ice age. And this ice age had never been explained before. So this is why this paper is really, really important. Oh. Um, and so this ice age was apparently responsible for a mass extinction event mm. in marine fossils anyway, um, but also at the ta- same time an increase in the biodiversity of a lot of other uh, f- uh, fauna species across planet earth so, so it became too cold for some but that then suited other yeah um, and they were allowed exactly so they could adapt and evolve and survive and flourish eventually after a long period of time because it wasn't sudden it was a it was a long running thing apparently and, and do we know what the material was like it was was it anything that was useful the, oh, that I don't know, yeah, actually. because it's, it's funny, yeah. you know, sometimes, you know, you get all sorts of weird stuff coming yep. in in yep. um, various uh, meteorites. Yeah, well, that I don't know, because what they did with the dating and having a look at how much there was, they basically burned away most of the rock yeah, right. um, and <laughs> left just the fragments so they could date them using, yeah. um, they looked at a different type of helium, I believe, that yeah. doesn't actually exist on Earth, but wow. exists externally and also cosmic ray bombardment yep. and all that kind of fun stuff. fun stuff but anyway it's interesting because it's um you know it's not to do with an asteroid collision here it's actually to do with yeah, an asteroid an extraterrestrial asteroid collision which yeah. uh, seems to so, so the fascinating thing about that for me is that um you know soon we're going to put the james webb telescope out at one of earth's lagrange points mm-hmm. so this is a point where if you if you hang there the gravity around you is equal in all yep. directions and you just stay there forever yeah and I'd love to go there now and see if you can find this dust. Yeah. Because if there was that much dust around, some of it yep. must have settled into that Lagrange point yeah, or various probably. Lagrange points around the Earth. Yeah, yeah. And it should still be there. Yeah, cool. absolutely. And I think, yeah. I mean, look, the Earth gets bombarded with, I'm going to mm, call it space dust all the, all the time, right? Yeah. Like heaps of it. Um, but this was an increase, <laughs> I think, the, the authors said, um, even just a threefold increase. Because um, the, the amount that we get at the moment is not enough to affect the climate at all. Mm. Um, but a threefold increase over a long period of time of kind of a hundred thousands of years or more is enough to affect the so climate. So as a climatologist, are you telling me that if we can smash a couple of asteroids near Jupiter together, we might be able to cool things down? Well, you know what? The authors, <laughs> over actually, years. The authors actually mentioned this in their paper as a, as, as, as a slow mechanism for cooling the climate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, let's not uh, worry about the acidification of the bit, yeah. oceans. But well, and so that was <laughs> yeah. actually... Actually, that's interesting you say that because that was, uh, that was another um, hypothesis the of theirs was that a bit of CO2 fertilisation might have helped with drawdown of CO2 right. as well. So... Yeah. acted as a bit of a sink, taking more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere because it was being used by the oceans, which kind of also helped to cool um, 
the earth. So mm. yeah, lots of lots of interesting thoughts in this paper. Good stuff. Good stuff. Dr. Crystal. Oh, well, I wanted to tell you a story about a university student getting drunk, which okay. happens every day. Well, yeah, in, in Australia is not generally considered a news story. However, the unique thing about this um, student here in Australia was that he'd never drunk a single alcoholic drink. Hang on. I know, right? And would, and would just inexplicably wake up drunk or turn up to work drunk or just be completely inebriated after drinking absolutely no alcoholic beverages. And in the end, this student who um, was an international student ended up having to go home to China to be cared for because couldn't hold down a job, couldn't attend classes because, you know, sporadically around once a month would just be completely plastered. And they didn't know what was <laughs> going free. on. Oh, yeah, but like yeah. this is Wasn't like... eating fermented fruit in his... Well, it turns you know, out dates. that he yeah, was suffering um, from a, a condition known as autobrewery syndrome. <laughs> that sounds made up. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Make your own beer. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what makes beer? Yeah. Well, what what uh, makes alcohol? What turns sugars into alcohol? Fermentation, fermentation process, process yeah. driven by... Oh, you're going to tell us, I'm sure. Yeast and bacteria driven by microorganisms, which we have have in our guts. And so normally cases of um, autobrewery syndrome are caused by yeast and can be treated with antifungals. However, in this case, that didn't work. And so they had to do um, an analysis of his microbiome. And it turns out that there's a bacteria. I mean, there's plenty of bacteria that can turn carbohydrates into alcohol. But um, he had 900 times the healthy level of a bacteria called um, uh, Klebsiella. Um, a Klebsiella, 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 sorry, Klebsiella bacteria, Klebsiella bacteria, and it actually represented about twenty percent of his microbiome. So, like mm. one in five bacteria in his gut was capable of of turning sugar into alcohol. And so, this boozy bacteria was it was incredibly bad for his health. And it turned out that he had um, quite extensive um, fatty uh, fatty liver disease, um, and. It, which is normally only prevalent in people who are really al- who are alcoholics. But yeah. there is this condition called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that does occur in a certain percentage of the population. So people thought, ah, oh, I wonder if this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is actually linked to this bacteria. And sure enough, a study has just been published in the journal Cell Metabolism, which is a small study of around 43 people, but it showed that about 60% of them had an overabundance of... Um, Klebsiella bacteria, and that when you took this Klebsiella bacteria and you put it into mice, into their microbiomes, they developed fatty acid, uh, fatty liver disease. Mm. And so it, now it could be this bacteria, the presence of this bacteria in your microbiome, or the overrepresentation of this bacteria in your microbiome. It's, it's found naturally at sort of normal levels, but if it's elevated, could be a risk factor or a biomarker for developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which yeah. I thought was a fascinating story that's it's led to this. bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, it's this bizarre. opened up this whole of new area of research. So did they yeah. find that the uni student had to eat certain things, like if he was eating more, I don't know, fruits and carbohydrates or something? Or I, was I, it just I don't a... have any more in, uh, medical information on that particular case, but you might imagine yeah. that um, a faecal transplant or a microbiome transplant mm. or doing something to rebalance his gut microbial yeah. or Just um, a heavy system. dose of antibiotics. Yeah. Well, again... <laughs> might um, knock the crap out of it and he'll stop getting drunk. Yeah, and every other bacteria. Yeah, yeah. Too. Oh, which you would have to then replace with yeah, healthy flora. Something, something so, good. Yeah. So yeah. if you were rebalancing um, your microbiome, uh, that that might help. But oh. um, but I just thought it was a really a really fascinating story about how. Um, well, and bravo for them working it out too, because there's so yeah. many parts of that story where you go. Yeah, new no. student gets drunk and says they never drink anything. Yeah. 
Okay, let's stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a whole other point a, where you just yeah, jump off. Yeah, but in a certain um, percentage yeah. of people, um, that, that could be the, the presence of this bacteria in their microbiome that's, um, that's giving them a bit too much alcohol. Interesting. I wonder if he would have passed a random breath test. Oh, no, the levels in his blood were up, were up to 10 Up to times, really high, yeah. Up to wow. 10 times the level of a... Um, of of, a, wow. of of driving limits. So, oh my god! Yeah, which is, which, so he's really shit faced. I mean, he's yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. It, it's incapacitating. Yeah, that's like, almost top hospitalisation. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. of course. And, and you can imagine if you were just in your everyday life, just all of a sudden wake up drunk, wake up yeah. completely um, uh, inebriated, just yeah. unable to function. So wow. yeah, to the point where he couldn't breathe at some time. Yeah, because like, yeah. that's really, really high. Yeah, it's yeah. alcohol poisoning. Basically, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. body's poisoning itself. No, and so um, the right. fact that we to get to the bottom to it, but not only that, to then leverage that information to um, sort of maybe look for a new biomarker for mm. non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is actually um, quite a significant breakthrough. Yeah. Well, a uh, very quick point uh, from me is uh, was down in the city on Friday, Bravo, Melbourne. Uh, very impressive. Very impressive. Climate change rally. Uh, numbers yeah. huge. Very, very impressive. A uh, little tear. You know, it was uh, – I couldn't stay for the whole thing because I hate crowds. <laughs> and once it got really packed in, it was like being a giant mosh pit. Mm. But it was, uh, it was very orderly and it was quite – yeah, it was quite a moving thing and quite shameful for, I think, every adult there that the kids have to arrange this for us because we can't get our shit together, but still. Now, uh, and you wanted to mention something, Dr. Yes, I just wanted to uh, basically say a, a quick valet to Dr. Well, Professor Penny Wetton, who passed away um, at the end of last week. Um, Penny was a, a colleague of mine. She worked at CSIRO for, oh, I don't know how many years, well before my time, but... Um, Penny was really instrumental in doing a lot of the climate change projections work for Australia when she led the group at, at CSIRO, mm. and um, she passed away suddenly. Uh, it was actually week before last, um, but we didn't hear about it until the end of last weekend. Yeah. So wanted to pay our respects and say, um, Vale Penny, she was wonderful, wonderful person in Australian climate science and contributed so much um, to both national and inter- international communities mm. and will be very much missed. Yep. She was also a huge champion for diversity in science yep. um, and, and very passionately um, committed to seeing a more diversity in science leadership. So, yep. yeah, she's made a, a huge impact. Mm. On that note, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with our first guest for today. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. In the studio with us now is Dr. Mark Warren. He's from Deakin University. Mark, welcome to Triple R. Uh, thanks, Shane. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks for coming in. Uh, it's interesting uh, we're doing the show after the big rally on Friday. Did, yeah. did you end up going yourself? No, I didn't. I Are you down like... in Geelong? No, I'm not down in Geelong, but I was unable to get to uh, the rally today. Yeah, yeah well, there, there wasn't any more space, so it was, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> the place was full. Uh, now, we, we got you in because we wanted to talk about some of the ancient species and various things that we're learning about, you know, extinction and so forth over the years. And you've been looking at the sort of coastal cliff regions in Victoria around Torquay, Jan Juk. Yep. I mean, what, what's special about those areas of our coastline? Well, I guess the uh, coastline along uh, the sort of uh, coast of Victoria and indeed along the coast of the entire of southern Australia is uh, 
really uh, made up of lots of uh, layers, which geologists mm -hmm. call strata, and a lot of the marine rocks there, those strata are really equivalent to past seabeds. Okay. And uh, they've sort of accumulated shells over periods of time, which represent, or other, other fossils that represent uh, life uh, uh, through time that have been on those seabeds, um, just off the coast of uh, southern Australia. And they extend back a long time, maybe 65 million years, right up to the present day. Mm. And um, they really represent a, a, a sort of a, a wonderful archive of the history of seabeds and marine life, uh, uh, extending back to a time when Australia was really quite closely mm. uh, uh, located to Antarctica. So it, it's giving us a whole... Uh, story about um, the, the evolution in terms of physical evolution, biological evolution of the Southern Ocean mm. and Bass Strait and those sort of things uh, 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 through time. So by looking at the different uh, uh, fossils that we get within the different strata, looking at how they've changed through time, we can make interpretations about how environments have changed through time mm. in the Southern Ocean and in Bass Strait. We can interpret um, things like uh, changes in ocean currents, changes in, in um, uh, water depths, all those sort of different things. And so we can sort of start to unravel the environmental history and the biological history, really, mm. of Southern Ocean. Mm. So it's, it's, it's really beautiful library, beautiful yeah. archive so, of, of So when, when we're talking about the, the, the hills around Janjuk and so yeah, forth, because yeah. it's quite hilly uh, yeah. down there. Yeah. Um, uh, my uncle uh, owns a property down there, and mm. back in the day before it was worth anything, we used to hit golf balls with three iron from one end <laughs> of his property to the yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. He's subdivided multiple times, anyway, as you might. But the, you know, it's quite hilly there. What, what has caused that region to have been in as you know, part of the ocean yeah. at that time was yeah. it was it higher levels of the ocean, or was it the ground level changing? Well, yes, ground level is mainly ground level changing. I mean, the oceans have gone up and down mm -hmm. quite a lot. So, for instance. Um just talking about notions, you know, sea level going up and down. If you look at the last uh, 2.6 million years in Bass Strait, Bass Strait's a really shallow seaway. Mm. And if we go from glacial to interglacial periods, for instance, uh, during glacial periods, there's a lot more of the uh, water in the hydrosphere is taken up by the ice caps of the North and yep. South Pole, which is lower the sea level. So Bass Strait would have been you know, a land bridge from between mainland Australia and Tasmania. Uh, so you would have completely vacated that area mm. at that time. And then during interglacial periods, which have been warmer, a lot of the ice in the, the poles have melted, the sea levels arose, then Bass Strait has become a seaway again. It's mm. The water's flooded into mm. it. If we go back earlier, back to the, the time of around uh, 30 million years ago, which is the cliffs around uh, uh, Janjuk and, and Torquay, um, they would have all been once part of the Bass Strait seabed, right. and um, th but a lot of those uh, those uh, seabeds, those different uh, strata, have been uplifted. And it's been uplifted because um, Australia, as a consequence of plate tectonics, it's drifted away from Antarctica. It's drifted north. It's collided mm. with uh, Asia. So you know we, that collision is marked by you know pretty much Wallace's line, where you get the faunal separations mm. between Australia and Asia. But that whole collision of Australia uh, moving into into Asia because of that sort of drift northwards uh, put the whole plate, Australian plate under tension. And one of the consequences of that is you've got uplift of the land, mm. including along southern Australia. And so some of those former seabeds 
have been uh, uplifted and we now see him exposed That's fascinating. Uh, in, in, in the cliffs down at Torquay and Janjak and now, places like that. Now, and you've been looking in particular at some of the, the seaweeds and so forth that get moved and dislodged and these things can yeah. apparently head a long way from where they yeah. where they start. So, we, I mean, if you if you take some of the materials there that started in, I guess, Janjak or Bastrop, yeah. I mean, where, where, where do we find, how far do they go? Yeah. So... My expertise is a micropaleontologist, so I study microscopic vertebrates, and a lot of some of those get attached to seaweeds. And one of the things that we can uh, that happens with shallow marine coastal seaweeds is that they are affected by storms. They get ripped mm-hmm. up by storms. We see seaweed yep. along the coastline, yeah, yeah. kelp deposits, those sort of things. Um, but the thing is that they're buoyant, and sometimes when they get ripped up, they can go great distances across vast oceans. So you get these shallow marine seaweeds, which are floating on the surface of these deep oceans and they raft mm. all these attached little organisms attached to them um, uh, across vast distances and when those seaweeds come into new areas and, and uh, uh, new regions providing the environmental conditions along the journey and where they end up are sort of approximately suitable those organisms can now colonise new areas right so what we can do by studying some of the paleontology of these microscopic organisms um, and looking at their biogeography and those sort of things, we can start to associate them with different ocean currents, such as the East Australian current. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the movie Finding Nemo, yep. yeah, right. you know, one of the storylines in that was uh, uh, some of Nemo's friends when they were looking for him hitched a ride yep. on turtles down the East Australian yeah, yeah. current and they moved location from the Goat Barrier Reef down to Sydney. And it's the same sort of process happening right. with these microscopic fossils. <laughs> and so by looking at the, the sort of the detailed taxonomy of these things and looking at their biogeography, we can then say, well, these, these particular types of organisms are associated with these particular currents. And then we can start to do an analysis of time about how these different currents, like the East Australian current and the Lewin current, which comes around the uh, southwest corner of Australia, mm. and even the Antarctic circumpolar current and well, local currents in Bass Strait as well, how they've, how they've evolved over time and how they've changed over time and how, they've, um, my, how things have migrated on those currents and how those microcurrents, currents, because they've got, uh, you know, they're associated often with different water temperatures, how they've changed the environment of Bass mm. Strait through time and how that's influenced the ecology, the extinctions of things, things come yeah. on currents and then they disappear. So, um, so, you, yeah. so in all that, you must yeah. have, because this is one of these things where it sounds like in, in some way, you're using knowledge of the currents to work out the ecology, but yeah. you're also, you know, primarily using the ecology here and your knowledge of that to work out the currents yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. do the other around. Yeah. How, how much do you, how much do you rely on your the knowledge of just how these various sea creatures have evolved? Because presumably you must you must mm. have extensive knowledge of that evolution to, to be able to map this out. Uh, yes, you do. So it's sort of like looking at, um, I guess, what. Uh, paleontologists and biologists call taxonomic clades so things that are really closely related and so um, for instance we get things in southeastern Australia um, uh, the groups of invertebrates that live in South Australia that also live in um, southwest Africa mm-hmm. along the Atlantic coast of southwest Africa and probably have their origins in Antarctica. During a time in Antarctica, it was quite warm, for instance. Right, yeah. And then over time, as the Antarctic circumpolar current has developed, which is a circular current around Antarctica, made it very cold, these things have migrated 
on ocean currents into slightly warmer regions. And so uh, they've managed to get to southeastern Australia on these surface gyre currents and, south, and, and into the South Atlantic. And so having an understanding of that evolutionary group of organisms mm. and, and, and how they've evolved in time and how they're related and then related that to their biogeography helps us then unravel their mm. sort of uh, their, their history in terms of migration through yeah. time. Yeah. And, w- and when you look at all these changes and so yeah. forth, are there particular groups of organisms that seem to be more resilient to these shifts? Because you're talking about vast periods of time where yeah. the environment has changed you know, radically over that, yeah, that yeah. period. Well, in terms of the sort of organisms I look at, um, if you even push it back further in time, back into the Cretaceous period, so right. you know, 80 or 90 million years, there were periods of time during the Cretaceous when um, there were major global oceanic oxygenation events, and those caused uh, massive extinction. Those oxygenation events were probably caused by uh, massive volcanism at the time, that, and uh, you know uh, that was toxic to the atmosphere yep. and, and and flowed into the oceans, and, and that caused a lot of dysoxia or low oxygen levels within the within the world's oceans worldwide, actually, and so a lot of you know marine organisms need oxygen to respire, yeah. you know, dissolved oxygen to respire. So if you take it out of those uh, environments, you get these mass extinctions occurring. Um, so the sort of organisms that sort of get through those those sort of temporary traumas, mm. I guess, envir- global environmental traumas, are things that, to start off with, are well adapted. So there are organisms that can cope with low oxygen levels. And so... Uh, they sort of managed to get through, but there's also the 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 idea of refuges or refugia, whether there's these small pockets around the globe where you still have higher oxygenation mm, in the seas. Right, and yeah. so whilst lots of things get wiped out everywhere, you get these sort of small pockets of refuges where these things manage to hang on. And then when the oxygen and oxic events are over, you know they inherit these great vacant ecological niches. And so what you see in the paleontological record is these major faunal changeovers, particularly in marine invertebrates, because you wipe out a lot what's mm. there. It's a very destructive event, yep. but they're also very creative events because the small pockets of things <coughs> that are around, they inherit the earth, yeah. and then they take their own evolutionary direction and reoccupy all those niches again. Yeah. Well, look, mate, it's it's fascinating. Fascinating story. I just love hearing it, and, the, and I don't think I'll look at those uh, hills in Torquay yeah. around that are in the same yeah. way again. You know, surfers on one yeah. side, history of the planet yeah. on the other. Um, it, it, it's really, really interesting. Um, just Quickly before I let you go, how small are these things? If I go down there with a shovel and start digging into the cliffs, will I be able to physically see this sort of stuff, or is it? Or well, is if, it you too go to, small? if you go down to Bell's Beach and um, all of those rocks, that, the ones at Bell's Beach in particular, um, are made exclusively of fossil shell right. material. Yeah, yeah the not whole all rock. of them. Yeah, not yeah. all. Jan Jack, it's a mixture of shells and mud. Yep. Uh, but there's, you know, there's um, there's big. You'll see big seashells in it. Um, uh, you know, uh, vertebrate paleontologists have found uh, uh, marine mammals in it. There's a whole story of uh, yep. uh, um, a marine mammal evolution in these rocks as well. And you'll find literally billions of microscopic. Wow shells yeah. of organisms because they're the most abundant things in the oceans and their remains end up in these and end up making these rocks yep well yeah, on the seafloor yeah. thank you mark folks no need yeah. to rush there's plenty there for everyone um yeah. thanks so much for chatting to us that's fascinating stuff good luck with the ongoing work thank you very much Shane. Yeah. dr mark warren from deakin university we're going to take a break for some music folks and we'll be back in uh, just a moment with our second guest for today 
Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. In the studio with us now is Dr. Christy Hispley. She is from Museum Victoria. Christy, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, now, it's fantastic to talk to you. This is part of our sort of uh, all things dead and ancient that we're uh, mm-hmm. looking at today. But um, you have been looking in particular at the fossil record of particular amphibians and reptiles and um, how, they've, how they've worked over time. So uh, there are nine that you're looking at in particular? Yes, I'm looking at nine fossil sites across Queensland. Um, these all have different... Um, ages, paleoclimate, so mm-hmm. the way they were at the time that the organisms were fossilized, um, and different um, species assemblages or communities. And so the idea is that if we can um, compare these, um, compare these over time and sites, that we yep. can maybe piece together a better picture of how these animals respond over evolutionary time, you know, really geological time, millions of years, how they respond to environmental change. Mm. Um, and that has... Um, been kind of different across those sites and different over time. So we've cycled through wet and dry periods, sea levels rising and falling. So it really gives um, a great resolution to look at those changes over long periods of time. So, so when we, you know, we, we were just hearing uh, earlier from another micro paleontologist about uh, this idea of strata and so forth, mm-hmm. with you know levels in in the ground that we we see these um, see these samples. In terms of you looking over a period of time, what where do you where do you search? Like, how do you know? Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a look here, and this is going to give me 100 million years ago. I'm going to look here, and this. I mean, how do you know where to go and what to mm-hmm. Uh, what to look for? Well, one answer is a lot of people have done the work for me. So okay. we have some really excellent, you know, geologists and paleontologists. Um, and really importantly for a lot of my um, fossil sites, uh, spelunkers or cavers. Oh, yeah. So a lot of those sites are, are caves and where um, animals maybe fell in at some time in the past and then died or often they are brought in um, by owls or, you know, uh, birds of prey and they mm-hmm. get eaten and just kind of dropped onto the floor. So you can go down into these caves. Um, one, for example, Capricorn Caves is open to the public. So they have a really great um, park there where you can go and mm-hmm. visit and you see just in the walls of the caves fine, fine levels. Um, and you can even see where these wet and dry periods have um, cycled. So you get kind of very dark brown bands and then something more sandy colored. So um, it gives an, an amazing amount of resolution. And then people look at also things like um, pollen, you know, fossilized yep. pollen. Um, but you, yeah, basically they um, kind of work backwards, you know, from the, the surface down. And, um, and you can also use different dating techniques. Um, so you try to to get um, a strata, yeah, a, a map, basically, a temporal map of those strata. Yeah, fascinating. What, one of the things I suspect a lot of people aren't aware of is that at the museum and museums around the world, uh, what you see is not all of what you guys have got. Is it? I mean, ha- how much have you got in storage? Uh, it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, that's true. What we have out are kind of, you know, the best of the best. It might yep. be just a, one selected individual that tells a very nice story, but you know, to even get that involved a lot of work. And it means that we probably have, you know, loads of other bits and pieces, you know, Mm. of those organisms. So um, literally millions of of items um, and the animals I work on. So there tend to be tiny, you know, in the range of one to five millimeter, maybe um, in length, tiny fossil lizard jaws, um, frog hip bones are a very common element called ilia. Um, we also have snake vertebrae, very common. So, but they're just 
isolated, you know, little bits and pieces. And I mean, you could you could bathe in this material, you know, right. you could shower in it. It's just so much. And so um, one of my goals has really been to to use those box, I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes of material, um, what are often overlooked, you know, so people might be interested a lot more in, in megafauna, maybe, or, or mm. marsupials or birds. Yeah. Um, and so these things kind of get tossed into boxes very often and, and put on a shelf. And, you know, it also takes expertise and time and really a lot of effort to work through those. So um, we do get volunteers that help us to sift through this stuff and pull out what is a rock and what is a fossil. But yep. um, but in the end, you know, it's really my goal to try to use those material because they offer so much um, resolution, you know, over time and, and over space um, to, to try to piece together the evolutionary history of those groups. Yeah. Is there a, a giant cavernous underground <laughs> labyrinth at the museum where all this is kept? There are lots and lots of rooms and they um, get stored into, well, sometimes it's as, as um, fancy as a cardboard box um, and <laughs> they get put onto shelves and into these giant compactors. So it's um, mm. that you have to kind ah. of turn a big wheel to, to open them up. So um, it's a really amazing thing if anyone gets a chance to, to go in and see those. But it just... Um, it's almost overwhelming how much material there is still to be looked yeah. at. Part of me wants to think it, it's like the final scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. But <laughs> I'm showing my, showing my age in, in mentioning that. But So, I mean, are any of these, are you able to tell if any of the, the, the bones that you're looking at are related to species that are there today? Or yes, is that- that's a, a huge part of this kind of a project is really to, one, you know, we could say, okay, these are similar maybe to bones at another site, you know, they're probably related. But what's more powerful is to really put that into a more modern evolutionary context, because, you know, a fossil can only tell you so much, you know, you don't have behavior, you don't have soft tissue, and so on. So if we can try to um, put that into a, a phylogenetic tree, you know, a, a tree of life, um, and say, okay, this is a lineage we have represented today. So, for example, f- a frog, um, these hip bones can be really um, telling about like, locomotion. So is this a hopper? Is this something that lived in a tree um, or was more aquatic? Um, so just that one tiny bone can tell a lot, but it means we have to also look at that bone in living animals. So aside from fossil collections, we have huge collections of um, of modern you know, animals from Australia and, and other places. And we can use those to try to build, basically what we try to do is build a, what we call a skeletal library. Um, so we could then, we do this digitally using um, x-ray CT scanning. So this is like a medical CAT scan, but for very tiny things. Um, so you can take this kind of pickled frog, uh, if you will, <laughs> ethanol preserved, um, you can CT scan it, and then you get this beautiful digital 3D model of all the, the bones. Sometimes you could even do this, look at soft tissue. Um, because, you know, museums don't really like if we're cutting apart these things and mm. ripping off their skin and so on, it's especially for fossils. So um, it's a really great way to use those modern collections. And then I could, you know, digitally or virtually pull out one tiny bone, compare that to the same 3D model of the fossil. And that gives um, kind of a geometric or mathematical, you know, mm. way to approach these. So looking at complex shapes um, digitally. So this has been a huge advancement in in paleontology especially, but in museums um, across the world, this is becoming kind of the microscope of the future, I would say. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. So with the digitization of museum records, how much is that facilitating global collaboration? 
A lot. I mean, this has been a huge... Um, it's a it's a big um, area of discussion right now because of this <clears throat> idea of, of sharing. So, um, of course, museums have collections, and that gives them some value. Um, and we have a lot of staff to take care of those collections. But once you digitize it, you know, who owns that digital model? And mm-hmm. is the value... Um, then kind of lost to the museum. So you could have um, things like 3D prints, you know, that you could sell, for example. And then mm. museums do this, especially in anthropology. I think this is a much more heated area for, for obvious reasons. Um, but um, it definitely, as far as research collaborations, is uh, a huge um, benefit because you don't have to physically travel to a museum to visit um, what could be sensitive or very unique material. So for a type specimen, for example, is the, the specimen that the species uh, description is based on. Mm. So, you know, people really don't want to send these things around and you don't even want to keep taking them out, you know, time after time. Mm. And so this digital model can give um, the ability for anyone to kind of uh, virtually visit these collections. And I think that's also really important for um people that maybe don't have as much um, access to, to research funding or people in you know, developing countries. So um, it's a nice way to kind of level the playing field and, and the software and ways to interact with that are also becoming much more open source. So, so, so when, you're, when you're dealing with this, I, I, I hear this, you know, this great version with the digital models. Presumably the, the thing we forget there is one of size. You, know, you can blow these things up mm. so all of a sudden you can see a lot of things mm-hmm. that you wouldn't otherwise see with the real samples. But as someone who works with this stuff, I mean, I mean, there must there must be an element of actually picking these things up and knowing what you're holding that's that's of great value. Yeah, yeah, and and that's an exciting part. It's a big, I think, responsibility too to mm. to treat these things with care. And and yeah, again, I would like to think that you know anything that that died well in this case maybe natural causes or not, but you know the museum holding all of these collections. Um, Let's use them, you know, let's use them in a way that can tell us something about um, about our world, you know, our impact on the world and, and where we're going in the future. So um, I think that that is uh, one of my main goals. So let's let's really try to make the most out of these um, these materials. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you do you have the opportunity to get involved in the curation at the museum as well? Does, do you have a... Uh, well, right, right now I've been working on material from Queensland. Um, mm-hmm. So my colleague at the Queensland Museum, Scott Hocknell, basically um, packs a lot of these things up and sends them down to me, and then right. I study. And, and I've even been able to go up there and, and go into some of these caves, so do wow. some collecting yeah. on my own, which is which has been fantastic. Um, but um, different collections have their own curators, and then those curators have kind of tend to have their own interests or maybe areas where they try to select new, yeah, bring in new material. Yeah. Is is there stuff around the Australian collection? You know, we often find with Australian fauna and, and flora that there's a lot that's very, very unique um, worldwide. And there's a lot of worldwide interest in that as a, as a result. Is there elements of this these sorts of collections that are, you know, getting a lot of interest worldwide because they're just so different to the rest of the world? Uh, absolutely. And, I mean, Australia is so unique, yeah, as mm. you said, um, kind of biologically, geographically, you know, we've been isolated for a long time. So I had this ancient Gondwanan connection, um, so connected to Antarctica. And um, those um, trying to kind of piece together the history of Australia using those collections is 
is um, a big goal, you know, for yeah. not only for I think Australian biology, but really for the world because um, it tells. Sometimes you you find something here, and yeah, it's next closest relative is going to be somewhere very different. So yeah. it tells us about the way um, continents move, for example, and geological processes. Yeah. Look, uh, Christy, it's great talking to you. It's fascinating to hear about all the stuff going on at the museum. I, I think I think people forget just how much museums are active research environments as mm. well as just places where you can go and see some really cool right. stuff with the kids. But uh, they, they really do have a lot of active stuff. And the, the, I remember once hearing that their their geological rock collection was in excess of three tonnes. <laughs> and, and they have a really good demonstration of it now there. But at the time, they had something uh, equivalent to a, a single shop window front on display. And I was thinking, that doesn't look like three tonnes. That yeah, looks like yeah. three kilos. We have to store it off-site a yeah, lot of times too. Yeah, yeah. just so. in- incredible to know that there's just so much there. Thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today and uh, good luck with this ongoing work. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. We have our third and final guest in the studio now. It's Douglas Ravinsky. He's from Monash University. Welcome to the studio, Douglas. Thanks for having me. Look, uh, you're, um, you're, you're working in something. We've talked about this a bit over the years on the show because it's hard not to when you do a show in, in, in Australia, but uh, you work on the thylacine. Yeah, um, that's right. Which is, um, let's just go back to Tasmanian tiger for those of you who have not heard of this, this animal. Um, we've done a lot on the Tasmanian devil and on occasion I mix these two things up on air. Apologies to uh, those that are still living, the Tasmanian devils. Right. But the Tasmanian tiger is something that's a bit of a myth. You know, still, there's still people citing it in the back of farms and so forth. But the last one was died in the Hobart Zoo, is that right? Uh, it died in the Bamoris Zoo, if I remember right, correctly, okay. yeah, uh, 1936. Okay. Yeah, so it's relatively recent that it's gone extinct. Yes. What, what were the primary causes of that? Well, the ultimate cause uh, was government-sponsored persecution, basically. Mm, right. uh, so there was a bounty scheme put out because the Tasmanian farmers were afraid that it was going to take all of their sheep, and it very quickly went extinct. Mm, yeah, I can imagine. And was that something that was actually happening? Like, was it actually taking sheep? That is a very big and open question. Uh, probably not. Um, I have I have no doubts that there were occasional sheep being taken, juveniles, uh, etc. But it doesn't seem to be an organism that was really well adapted towards taking prey as large as sheep. And um, there's very, very few, um, I guess, observational evidence of such a thing happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was mostly a case of that animal looks large and scary and kind of like a wolf from back home. So let's get rid of it right now. Yeah, yeah. And we, we were talking to Mark earlier in the program about the sort of land bridge coming and going in mm-hmm. terms of Bass Strait. Was the thylacine distributed throughout Australia at one point? Oh, absolutely. We actually even find um, about two million years or so ago um, fossils of either the thylacine or something very similar to the thylacine in New Guinea as well. Right, uh, yeah. So yeah, it was distributed across the uh, Australian continent up until a little over 3,000 years ago, uh, at which point it and the Tasmanian devil, which was also distributed mm. across mainland Australia, disappeared. Mm. Um, and the causes for that are um, contentious as well. Um, much less difficult to kind of pin down than, well, we paid money to get rid of it. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But it seems that, uh, like most um, extinction events, it was a multifactorial issue where you right. have um, human intensification, 
of resource usage, hunting, things like that, uh, fire regime changes, coupled with uh, around 4,000 years ago, the introduction of the dingo to mm. mainland Australia. Yeah. And the dingo... Um, probably if it didn't directly compete with the thylacine um, was one of those things where it just added another stressor to what was already an environment and an ecosystem in flux and once you have so many things on the scale you can tip the mm. balance very easily and very quickly and very quickly after the dingo was introduced to the continent both mainland devil and the thylacine go extinct mm. you mentioned before that you know uh, european settlers came out looked mm. a bit like a wolf so let's kill it but what what was the thylacine's closest sort of relative that we would know about it's a really excellent question so they aren't extremely closely related to anything that we have today, which is one of the sad things about them being gone. Um, The closest relatives would be things like the Tasmanian devil or the quolls, um, so like the spotted tail quoll or the eastern quoll, and the numbat, which is another weird critter uh, that very few people know about and is probably in danger of going extinct soon too, which is another... I mean, story. That, that's fascinating to me. I mean, when we think about this animal, we'd be normally thinking about it being close to something like like a wolf or a dog or you yeah, know, a cat, a big cat. You know, people even talk about you know big cats being spotted and so forth. Panthers in the wild and all this sort of nonsense. But uh, the idea that it's a Tasmanian devil, having seen these things up close, they don't look like the pictures of the Tasmanian tiger. It seems like quite a quite a variation there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and the thylacine, it's, it seems to shock a lot of people when they find out that it's a marsupial, just like a kangaroo mm. uh, or a possum. Um, but the thylacine and, let's say, the Tasmanian devil uh, last shared a common ancestor probably somewhere around 36 million years ago. Right. Uh, so, again, not really closely related. And it is one of those things that when we lost the thylacine, um, that wasn't just the last member of that species dying in 1936. That was actually the last member of the last species, the last genus of an entire family of organisms. So that's like losing the last member of the felids. So now there are no No more cats. cats. Yeah, yeah, just the whole thing gone. We're talking cats in the overarching scheme from house cats through to tigers. It was that large of a... Wow. Yeah. Now, as part of your project, you've been looking at trying to get a get a feel for the sort of the eco- ecological niche that it mm-hmm. took up. How, how do you go about that, given that it's no longer around? That's a really good question. Um, I do it via comparative anatomy and functional morphology. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I look at the anatomy of a whole range of carnivorous mammals. And once I get a good baseline as to how the shapes are, are and how they vary, I can start to correlate that with behaviors within the animals um, that we can actually directly observe. So I can go out and I can watch animal X do a thing and then compare its anatomy. Right. And once you build up a big comparative data set like that, you can kind of slot in unknowns into that data set. And that's what we mostly do is we go out, we get a large data set of um, morphology, of anatomy, and behavior, and ecological niche. And then we slot the thylacine's anatomy into that or mm. any other extinct organism, you know, pick your poison. Mm. So if you, if you, we're almost out of time, but if, if you were to give us like the, the top three things you've learned there about the, the way the thylacine would have, you know, approached the world, what, what have we learned? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, that's a big question. Uh, yeah, so it uh, was probably not very wolf-like at all. Um, okay. That doesn't mean necessarily that it wasn't doggish-like because there are a lot of different types of ways to be a dog. Um but 
it really does seem like it was something that was very unique and very different and very mm-hmm. interesting. And it's a really sad thing that it was lost because it seems to have been um, at a size and shape and, and a functionality that we just don't have a modern analog for, period. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it really interesting and also really difficult to try to tease out exactly what it was doing. Yeah. Oh, look, it's fascinating. I think a lot of people have been fascinated by this particular animal for a long time. And, and it's great that you're, you're doing this research and looking into you know some of these details. Uh, some stage, maybe we'll get you back, talk, you know, see what you find, and sure. it would be really interesting to... Um, to explore it further but uh, it is sad are, are there any specimens in you know that have been well preserved of the thylacine oh absolutely uh there are um mummified specimens of the mainland uh yeah. thylacine in um museums in western australia um but there are also preserved specimens um in ethanol alcohol mm, preserved right. specimens uh, all over the world um mostly in europe surprisingly mm. enough okay um but once again, just like uh, Dr. Hipsley was saying, uh, museums are very yeah. hesitant to let you just kind of grab their preserved specimen that is a one-of-a-kind thing and yeah. take it apart. But yeah. we can do wonderful things with CT scans, MRIs, yeah. things like that. Yeah, sounds good. Douglas, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Folks, we're almost out of time. Dr. Crystal, thanks so much. Good Always to see you. a pleasure. And Dr. Ailey. Thank you, Dr. Shane. You, uh, big uh, climate stuff coming up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, as always. As always. <laughs> yeah. you've, got, you've got your work cut out for you. I certainly do. <laughs> Every day. Well, my favourite geological thing on Twitter right now is the Mineral Cup. Check out the Battle oh. of the Minerals on Twitter. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been watching one about mountains fighting it out, which is funny. Volcanoes, they're, they're, it's always fun to watch. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.